Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, cardio nerds. This is Ahmad Ghunim, internal medicine resident at Beth Israel Leahy Health and Cardio Nerds Academy Fellow in House Jones. Thank you for tuning in to this Narratives in Cardiology discussion about the vital role of international medical graduates in the U.S. medical workforce with a master cardio nerd, Dr. William Zalby. This episode is especially meaningful for me. I myself grew up and went to medical school and residency in Alexandria, Egypt. I saw and felt firsthand the challenges IMGs face just to break into the U.S. medical system. Like many IMGs, I took an unpaid research position during my time before residency. While this was a period of tremendous growth, it was a difficult time for my wife and myself financially, and thankfully, we had family to help pay the bills. Not everyone is so lucky. When it came time for applications, I applied to nearly 200 programs. The cost, the rejections, the disappointments, and the uncertainties were disheartening at times, to say the least. I feel so grateful to my PD, Dr. Faust, and my mentors at Leahy for taking a chance on me and giving me the opportunity to contribute as a physician in the U.S. I'm also grateful for Cardinals, who took a huge chance on me and gave me the opportunity to grow as an educator as part of the academy. Soon, I'll be facing another application cycle as I gear up to dive into what I think is the best field, cardiology. Hearing Dr. Zobi's story and his successes as an IMG shatters a glass ceiling that has always been right above me. Rather than feeling daunted, I now feel inspired. Instead of disadvantage, I feel hope. To all my IMG colleagues, I hope you enjoyed this special discussion. We stand together on the shoulders of giants like Dr. Zobi to fulfill our ultimate goals, to take care of our patients in the best way possible. Friends, we thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Definitely make sure you claim free CME credit by using the link in the episode description. Relevant speaker disclosures are listed in the episode description. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds family. We have an exciting Narratives in Cardiology episode for you today. As many of you know, the CardioNerds Narratives in Cardiology series features cardiovascular fellows and faculty representing diverse backgrounds, subspecialties, career stages, and career paths. Discussing why these faculty chose careers in cardiology and their passion for their work are essential components to inspiring interest in the field. Today, we will be focusing on the narratives of international medical graduates who have trailblazed amazing careers in cardiology, and we could not think of a better group of guests to feature. I'll take our first guest, Dr. Victor Knopfel. Dr. Victor Knopfel is Chief Fellow for the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Victor was born in Sydney, Australia, and earned his medical school degree from the American University of Beirut. He completed his internal medicine training at the Osler House Staff Training Program at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. He'll be pursuing subspecialty training in cardiac electrophysiology. His research efforts in cardiovascular epidemiology are focused on the intersection of genetics and cardiac arrhythmias. In his free time, he enjoys skiing and playing basketball. On a personal level, I very much look up to the brilliance and compassion of Victor. We've been great friends for years, and I would say starting from our GI service, although he tells me that we actually met years before that, but I was a supervising resident in intern year. 
he was a born cardiologist slash EP person back then when he was presenting a patient to me and he's told me that he suspects the patient has a right bundle branch block based on the split sounds of the P2. Victor, welcome, welcome, welcome. Damn, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm truly excited. It's truly an honor to be among this distinguished panel. Um, really excited to be here today. And then, yes, we go way before that. I first met you when I was a postdoc at Hopkins doing a rotation on the Ulster service as a postdoc slash medical student. And the first day I show up, Dan presents this case from overnight, just brilliant from A to Z, and was told by the ED physician that the patient did not have a pulmonary embolus. It was just short of breath because they had heart failure. And Dan was just not convinced and got that CT scan and diagnosed the PE and changed the patient's treatment. And I was like, out of my mind. This is the person I want to be when I train. And then we went along to be friends and colleagues over many years. And as you said, you were my supervising resident on my first rotation of the GI service. The other thing I remember, Dan, is I did the first call on that weekend. And you said, yeah, it's it's rough. It's 13 patients, but it shouldn't be a problem. But what you did not know is that I had never used the electronic medical record before. I was used to paper charts. So it was not easy, but we made it through it. Thank you for all the support and all the fun times we've had together. And looking forward to this episode. I'm not surprised that Dan, who would later found the Cardinals, was as brilliant back then as he is now. But while he doesn't remember the first day he met Victor Knopfel, I certainly remember the first day I met Dr. Victor Knopfel. One of my claims to fame from residency, I had the pleasure of working with Victor. Victor, your very first day as a full-fledged doctor, you walked into our liver service resident office with your brand new Dr. White coat. And from that very first day, I just knew that you were something special, man. You're a chief fellow at the Brigham right now. And it was so apparent back then on that very first day that you would do great things. Speaking of brilliant people who are going to do great things, I am so thrilled to introduce Dr. Isadora Sanchez Machias. Isa was born and raised in Salvador, Brazil, completed medical school from Federal University of Bahia. She is now an internal medicine resident at the Cleveland Clinic and soon-to-be cardiology fellow at the Great Houston Methodist Hospital. In her free time, she enjoys outdoor activities, fitness, and most recently cooking. And I have to say, she's shared so many pictures of delicious-looking, mouth-watering food, and I've yet to taste a single bite. I have had the pleasure of working with Isa both clinically as well as via the CardioNerds after she joined our family as Academy Fellow in House Jones. So Isa, welcome to you. And I'm so happy to finally have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Amit. It's such a pleasure to be here in this show with such special guests. And with the cooking, I need to perfect myself much more before I'm able to offer you anything, my friend. On the other hand, I'm actually super excited to introduce one of our other guests today, a very special person I met during residency interviews. I would like to introduce Dr. Giselle Alexandra Suero Abreu. She's an incoming cardiology fellow at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Giselle was born and raised in the Dominican Republic, where she received her MD degree from the Instituto Tecnológico de Santo Domingo, Intec. She then went to NYU and obtained both an MSc in Biology, Physiology, and Neuroscience, and later a PhD in Biomedical Imaging. She went on to complete an internal medicine residency at the Rutgers University New Jersey Medical School, and is currently completing a chief resident year. She is a star by every measure and will surely have an impactful career as a physician scientist in the fields of cardio-oncology and cardiac imaging. 
It's funny because I met Giselle, we never actually met in person, but we completely feel like friends because we met on Twitter during our interview season. And I looked at her and the things she was saying and the way she was so passionate about being a chief resident, about uh, being a future cardiologist. And she was also a Latin American woman. And I reached out to her immediately, basically said, hey, I think we're meant to be friends. Let's start talking right now. And we exchanged phone numbers and we talked and supported each other through the interview season for fellowship. And it was really fun. I was very positively surprised when Amit told me that we were going to be in the same episode with Dr. Zogby and all of you guys. So I'm very excited. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's an honor to be part of this important episode that is so close to my heart. Isa, thank you for the kind introduction. And yes, Isa and I connected during the virtual cardiology fellowship recruitment season this year. And we are a testament that you can connect even virtually. And it's wonderful that we get to work together. And I'm looking forward to going to fellowship together as friends as well. All right. I was left with the easiest and most difficult task of this episode today. So I was granted with a mission of introducing our guest speaker today, the one and only Dr. William Zogby. He holds the Elkins Family Distinguished Chair in Cardiac Health at the Houston Methodist DeBakey Heart and Vascular Center. He is also the chairman of the Department of Cardiology at Houston Methodist Hospital. He is a master of the American College of Cardiology and served as president in 2012. Dr. Zogby was born in Beirut, Lebanon, and he moved to the United States in the early years of his medical education. He did his cardiology fellowship at Baylor College of Medicine, where he stayed as professor for 20 years. In 2005, Dr. Zogby joined Houston Methodist and established a cardiovascular imaging institute. He also received the William L. Winters Chair in Cardiovascular Imaging at Houston Methodist DeBakey Heart and Vascular Center. In 2016, Dr. Zogby was appointed Chair of Cardiology at the same institution. Dr. Zogby served as President of ASE in 2008 and 2009 and President of the American College of Cardiology in 2012 to 2013. He served on the ACC Board of Trustees from 2001 to 2015, and he represented the ACC and the global cardiovascular community at meetings of the United Nations and the World Health Organization. As a dedicated educator, Dr. Zogby has trained more than 100 cardiology fellows in advanced cardiovascular imaging. In 2004, he received the American Society of Echocardiography's Richard Pop Excellence in Teaching Award. Personally, when I was invited to participate in this episode, I felt honored. I remember when I found out I would be interviewed by Dr. Zogby at Houston Methodist. I felt so lucky, but somewhat very nervous too. How do I start a conversation with such an authority in cardiology and cardiovascular imaging? But this completely changed in less than a minute of interview. Above and beyond all of his incredible accomplishments that I just mentioned, I was amazed with his humbleness and his easy laugh that we will likely see in this episode many times. I remember leaving my interview thinking we could talk for hours. I'm very glad to continue the conversation today. Dr. Zogby, welcome to the show. Thank you, Isa, and thank you very much for your invitation to spend some time with you in this really uh, timely and, and wonderful episode. Uh, I know you're going to address international medical graduates, but graduates in general. And I love your forum of Cardio Nerds. There's nothing nerdy about it. It is just lovely. And to have open conversations on things that matter to trainees, 
but not only to trainees, to actually faculty because they interact with you and they help you train and grow in the field. And this is not about three years, four years. It is a lifelong commitment. Thank you so much, Dr. Salvi. We've read your work, great papers, while we were preparing this episode, and we're so impressed with your longstanding commitment and advocacy for international medical graduates, specifically in the cardiovascular workforce. So first, thank you so much for all that work. And for those who are not familiar with the definition, international medical graduates, or IMGs, are physicians who graduated outside of U.S. medical schools, regardless of nationality. Non-U.S. IMGs are IMGs who are not U.S. citizens or permanent residents. Dr. Salvi, to your knowledge, what is the current state of the IMG workforce in the U.S., and how has this changed over the years, particularly in the field of cardiology? IMGs are an integral part of training and the workforce in the United States. This is nothing peculiar or particular to cardiovascular medicine. This has been going on, I would say, for close to 30 plus years. And the reason for it are two things. One is that the workforce in the United States, because of its population and the need for having a certain number of physicians to the population, we would not be able to fulfill the number of positions of medical trainees in general for the population. So that's number one. Number two, obviously, we are leaders in this country of medicine, science, and training. You know, we are really, truly looked upon as one of the stellar performers in that area. So it is natural, right, that individuals who are aspiring to train and maybe work in the United States from all over the world would be interested in joining forces, come and train and everything else to do with medicine. If you look over the years, and these numbers have not changed, maybe the number of applicants have changed. But the workforce here in the United States, depending on the specialty and the area of medicine, could be between 25 to 45 percent and at times even more, depending on what area. IMGs, this is their background. Obviously, they come in and train here and become integral part of the workforce in the United States for cardiology per se. It also depends on whether it is general cardiology or some of the subspecialties like EP or interventional imaging. Again, it's between 35 and 55%. And these numbers have not changed over the years because of the number one need and two interest in, in these positions. Now, the number of applicants may have changed because at times it gets a little tighter for individuals to apply. You know, the CS test that was done before and so many other things. So the pool was incredibly large. We're talking about seven, 8,000 applying for, you know, a smaller percentage of that total pool. So yes, the number of applicants over the years have decreased, but the number of opportunities are pretty much about the same. That's amazing, Dr. Zogby. Thanks so much for your thorough introduction and explanation. So during my medicine residency at Cleveland Clinic, I was very lucky to be surrounded by a diverse group of co-residents, and many of them are IMGs. Many of them are also going to top-notch cardiology fellowship training programs. Still, we face a lot of difficulties in securing these desirable training positions. And I feel that even after residency, in comparison to my AMG colleagues, I feel like we end up struggling more and going through more barriers. In your view, what are some challenges that IMGs face as they advance in training and beyond? 
There are certain challenges, certainly, that you experience. I've personally experienced being an IMG by definition many years ago, and we can talk about that journey. But I think these are realistic challenges and not necessarily discriminating. Okay, and let's go maybe through some of them that I know I have to deal with as chair of cardiology, but also I do not forget my roots and the various things that people go through to get to where they want to be. Number one, if you're coming from a foreign country, graduating from a foreign country, it is a steeper ladder to come into this country and be competitive among other individuals who have trained here. And let me tell you that one issue is the medical school itself, right? If the medical school is known internationally, has had already some connections with training programs here, and you see that actually, you see some pockets of training programs that have a pipeline, quote unquote, if you will, because they know the graduates, they know that recommendation letters mean something as opposed to being a generic recommendation high letter. Rarely people write poor recommendation letters, otherwise they won't write them. So number one then is where are you coming from? Because in this country here, people know the various training programs, the various medical schools, so it's easier, and that's number one. Number two is who the recommendations letters are coming from. So the more connection you have besides the name, if there are some people who were trained here and they recommend it. So there's a, some personal touch, if you will, at times in these situations makes it easier. But basically coming from a foreign country, these are the major challenges. On top of that is visas, right? People at times and programs at times may shy away from a J visa. Or if the trainee is insisting on having an H visa as opposed to a J, that makes it harder because it takes more steps. It takes more resources to be able to do that. So you have to keep that in mind when you request such a thing. And fourth is how do you become competitive? So we talked about the advantages of training or getting medical school in this country. How can you be competitive? And it's harder. Obviously, quite a few of the trainees that are applying are almost top of their class, a high percentage of the achievement in their class. And, and I've seen a trend over the years is that for them to be more and more competitive, they opt to do other things in between to come to this country, meaning doing research, let's say in cardiovascular medicine. Many people knock on our door and we look at so many applicants, you can't accommodate all of them. But for those who can do some research before, at times they may do a year or two. So yes, that lengthens your pathway to come and training. They become more competitive because besides being productive, hopefully, they're connected now with a program that people either trust or at least they can add to their portfolio. So these are, I think, some practical challenges. Dr. Zogby, thanks for going over some of the difficulties that people face as they transition from outside into training and beyond here in America. I've got to recall a story from Dr. Martha Galati, again, who's such a tremendous mentor for us and thankfully had introduced us to you. So she did her medical school at McGill University, and she was telling me how she, uh, during her interviews for residency, she interviewed very well, actually. Not surprisingly, she's tremendous. But one of the institutions where she was interviewing it had name tags that they gave to each of the applicants, and it was the person's name and the institution they were coming from. So it would say something like Amit Goyal, University of California, San Diego, Daniel Ambinder, University of Maryland School of Medicine. And for her, it said Martha Galati foreign medical graduate. And she said how it made her feel. It made her feel small. It made her feel alienated. And she ended up not ranking this particular institution. But um, 
there are several challenges that are real and tangible, but there are also challenges in terms of how you're made to feel as you're going through these various steps, even as somebody so accomplished and incredible as Dr. Gulati. Yeah, and I think this is also realistic, and hopefully we can equalize the field. There may be some programs who prefer not to have foreign medical graduates be part of it because of the issues related to it. Not necessarily against a certain person and their background and maybe, uh, you know, the country where they're coming from, etc. But just to go through hoops at times, they prefer not to. But I'll tell you something, they will be missing an amazing talent. And remember, this is not lifelong employment. This is providing an opportunity for trainees to bring in their knowledge, interact with other trainees, and all the issues of diversity and different backgrounds and all things that hopefully we will also touch upon. So I'm hoping that gradually some of these biases are lessened. And I think they are in a way lessened because if you take a look at most programs, they have IMGs within their trainees and within their faculty ultimately. But I think we have to be made aware of that and made aware of some of the challenges that graduates from foreign medical schools face in this country. Dr. Sabi, when I hear you speak, um, it resonates a lot with my own story. As you mentioned, as international medical graduates, we are always thinking how to become more competitive. And I was one of those examples. I pursue a um, research degree, a PhD at NYU. But that also, as you very well mentioned, lengthens your training and causes other challenges during the application season. So you you are faced with a system where then you become a candidate that is not typical, is not a recent graduate. Um, how do you see leaders could approach this in terms of holistically evaluating a candidate while at the same time having to look at many applications? What are your thoughts in that regard? Let me tell you, most training programs would look for best candidates that are obviously driven, motivated, knowledgeable, because they have to take care of patients, remember that, and that they can perform. And hopefully it's a mutual you know, working relationship. And as I mentioned, it is a bit difficult and you have to you know, wear the hat of the program director and the program itself. How do you pick such individuals? And you hope that ultimately you're going to have some connection to various programs outside the United States. To me, I think this is an asset. When we look at applicants coming on board, we take a look at the whole portfolio, not the grades only of a step one, two, and three. Obviously, these are important. These are objective criteria. Take a look at their background, their motivation. What have they accomplished? right? Are they going to be a good fit? Are they motivated, energetic, and productive? And they're great physicians to start with. So I do hope, I know the vast majority of program directors would look at this, but we have to be honest that foreign medical graduates, international medical graduates have a little more of a challenge just because of what goes into the equation. I know at times you go for what is available. Okay. This is obviously an advice for people applying is if you decide to go in that direction, do it in the direction of where you think, you know, your passion lies as opposed to just what's available. At times you may have to settle for what's available. And I understand it because you're so motivated. You just want to get there, but at least start looking for things. If you're interested ultimately in cardiovascular medicine, you know, do your homework and look around whatever connections you have, whatever mentors you have locally. They have connections. 
So it is about networking because that's how it gets you one way or another. And at times, I share with you, at times, I get some of these amazing letters from people that I don't know at all. And I think the case is so strong. You just, although you may not have a position, I'll create one for them. And I do hope we could, all of us, do something like this to help people aspiring and so motivated to be able to do something. Although, you know, locally, they may not have neither the means nor the resources nor the availability to do such. Maybe I could just follow up with a question, Dr. Zobie. Um, I think some of the maybe counter arguments that are circulated at times are that foreign medical graduates may be taking the place of a U.S. medical graduate who themselves have to go through a lot of hoops to go through medical school and all the financial burdens that could entail. What is your assessment of that argument? I don't truly believe such. And the reason for it is two things. One, we don't have enough good applicants that would go through the various training programs, in truth. Now, if you want to say, I'm going to close the venue for anybody who is international medical graduates and take all the applicants that are applying for training programs, be it medicine, surgery, whatever it is, you may end up conceivably with individuals who are interested, but may not be able to perform to the level that you want to perform. So I leave it personally to a competitiveness of people who are motivated, who are interested, who have the right passion to go into medicine, who have what is needed, because we want stellar people going further into this field. This is not the stock market. This is not about business savviness. This is about hopefully fulfilling a mission. And, uh, and I think if our you know, U.S. graduates are the most competitive, let it be. If some of our international medical graduates are the ones who, uh, who are just like amazing people, I'm going to look in my program. I'm going to look for amazing people. And it is competitive. We don't have slots for everybody. But at the same time, this is a competitive world. And we want U.S. and non-U.S. to be in the best shape, form, applications, background, motivation to be able to do what is needed. Great. Maybe I can add some numbers to this discussion. Uh, Dr. Zerbi, recently data from the 2018 NRMP program director survey showed that 46% of program directors would seldom interview a non-U.S. IMG and 32% would never do so. This certainly may reflect some unconscious and conscious biases towards IMGs. In your opinion, where do you think this comes from and what might we do to reduce this bias in recruitment? It is an unfortunate number, particularly the ones that say, I will never interview somebody who is an IMG. And we may have to understand beyond a survey, what are the underlying factors that are causing such a thing? Is this a bias just because I am US centric and I'm just not interested in diversity in my program? Is it because of the challenges that at times that program directors have to go through? Is it because of a T32 or other things that foreign graduates may not qualify for? Is it because of visa issues? Is it because of a bad experience that some of these graduates were, quote unquote, sold on a good graduate and end up not performing well within their cadre of individuals? And is it because I never had such experience before? I don't know what I'm missing. And maybe they should talk to other program directors. So to me, maybe through cardio nerds, maybe through ACC, AHA, other things, okay? 
to have a discussion among program directors, cardiovascular or otherwise, and talk about this particular issue so people know from each other and maybe decrease some of these barriers. I think a positive momentum in that direction is just look at over the past, I would say, two years. Most programs, I'm not talking about program directors, but most programs, healthcare systems, companies, you name it, universities are thinking of things that was in the background, was not really much talked about, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion. I mean, this is not a silo as to who do I hire as a faculty or who do I employ and what my staff looks like. For program directors, that should be one of those factors that you look at and maybe through the various mechanisms that should be up there talked about. And I'm glad you raised it because to tell you the truth, I was not aware of such large numbers. We can't keep up with all data, but since this is the focus of today, you've enlightened me as to the magnitude of the problem. And this is not a 5%, right? So this is important to tackle. Thank you, Dr. Zogby. We agree. This is an important conversation to have. Clearly, our international medical graduate colleagues possess the talent, passion, and compassion for top-notch clinical care and innovations in research, as just looking around the room here today, but obviously also broadly speaking. Dr. Zogby, if you could, would you and how would you change the selection process for IMGs into internal medicine and subsequently cardiology residencies and fellowships? In my own program, I'm not going to change anything. And let me tell you why. Because we look at them in as favorable look, we look for this. And our track record shows that we like diversity, not only in the United States, but also because uh, this is an asset and we can talk about that. But I'm just thinking out loud how personally, I think you have to present the candidates in a most objective and compelling way so that they can be competing. And if I have from an obscure medical school that I haven't learned about, I don't know about all the medical schools, but if the medical school is not well known, and most of these recommendation letters, if you will, are generic, and the grades is a pass-fail ratio, and I have no idea, I'm sorry, I know there's going to be a discussion about this, but how would I know whether this individual going to be able to, number one, be able to perform well, because there is a performance besides teaching. They have to take care of patients when we are with supervision, right? So what I'm saying is to decrease some of this is one, increase the level of discussion to enhance the application process so that we have some objective measures in addition to conceivably a personal connection so that somebody who is training in, let's say, South America or the Middle East or Japan can make a case and they can take a look at mentors within their program who've trained somewhere else outside because then they can connect one way or another so people know whether their recommendation is really very valuable, yes or no. So you have to put the hat of the people selecting because they don't want to select individuals who don't perform well. So it's, it's, it's a dialogue. And the better case you present objectively and subjectively with some connection, network, some proof that this individual, if we don't know what their medical school, where the people are, we have to be able to come to, to some consensus regarding that. And it cannot be generic. Really, it cannot be generic. Meaning somebody coming from a foreign medical graduate applying for, let's say, 100 training programs, and all of them is going to look at it the same because they don't have that connectivity. 
That's so amazing, Dr. Zogby. Thank you for explaining all that to us because us IMG is on the other side of when we're applying and interviewing and going through the whole process. We don't know for sure what it's being expected, what it's being looked at. And you can't imagine how thrilled, how excited I was when I finally saw the list of my co-fellows upcoming at Houston Methodist. And my class is comprised by IMG colleagues from so many countries like Nigeria, India, Pakistan, Syria, and in my case, Brazil. This was an amazing surprise, and I can't wait to start working with such a diverse group of co-fellows. No, it's, it's thrilling to see. The way I see it is many of these IMGs are the best in class. Just imagine what they had to go through, just like you and I and many other people here, even on the call. Uh, what you had to go through yourself, okay, to compete internally in the country of origin. The amazing support that usually also families have for such. And the sacrifices that people, when they go across either the land or the seas and everything else of what are the challenges that they're going to face, but they have that motivation to be able to do that. So many of these IMGs are really top of their class in so many ways. And not tapping on such a treasure may actually decrease that opportunity for them, number one, to shine and to contribute to training, research, education, and ultimately to the workforce. And I want to say something about that. When you contribute to the workforce, meaning training in the United States, it's not necessarily staying in the United States, although, you know, many stay. Many of them go back, not necessarily only because of a J visa requirement or other things. I can tell you, two of my graduates from cardiology went back, I'm thinking of, you know, the recent past, went back to the American University of Beirut, my alma mater. And actually, the chief of cardiology is my trainee. And I'm so proud of that. And the chief of the Echo Lab is my, one of my trainee. And they're passionate. So let's give them the opportunity to train among the best, learn and acquire the knowledge and the experience in, you know, the best training programs in the United States. And for those of them who want to go back and serve their country and give, you know, to their community and their society, we would encourage them to do so. But ultimately, it is their choice. So it's not necessarily a brain drain. Yes, there is some of that, but you cannot stop it. The same thing is for engineering, computer sciences. But also there is this collaboration that goes both ways, right? That goes both ways between us and here. I try to help my alma mater in so many other ways. I try to help people in the Middle East or South America in so many ways. You may not necessarily be there physically and you want to give back as much as possible and interchange. And that's one positive thing from this pandemic is we can reach almost anywhere and we have the technology to reach almost anywhere. So let's keep that in mind when we train IMGs here in this country. You know, we have to think about the workforce here, the workforce there to take care of patients, but also to contribute to innovation and sharing knowledge and education. Dr. Sabi, following on that idea of the workforce of international medical graduates and from your position leading an academic institution, how do you see the selection process of IMGs when transitioning to the cardiology workforce in terms of similarities at the trainee level or any differences? I think it's easier to tell you the truth for us cardiologists as opposed to internal medicine selection. And you know why because they've already been through training programs here in the United States. So that major hoop has occurred. 
Now, at times, we get candidates who are interested from foreign countries and supported by their governments to train in cardiology after their internal medicine training somewhere else. And yes, we consider them just like anybody else from a competitiveness point of view, from everything aspect point of view, their drive, their motivation, their interest in research, et cetera, et cetera. But what I'm saying is that pool is still large. If you look back, we don't dig into where people are coming from. Obviously, we take a look at that. But more importantly is at that level, right? It is already a higher level of knowledge of them because they are in the United States. And I do aim for diversity in my program. And I do hope other people also aim for that because this is the power of innovation, the power of inclusion, the power of diversity. And just imagine if we all think alike, look alike, have the same background, have the same interest. And just imagine if all of you were imagers. Can you believe that? It just, no, I'm being facetious here, but just how dull it would be, number one, how non-stimulating it would be and how narrowly focused it would be. Dr. Zerbi, one of the other challenges that foreign medical graduates who want to pursue an academic career, especially in cardiology, face is the limitation of funding at the trainee level to do research. And although there are some funding mechanisms through societies, those remain limited and very competitive. Through your leadership roles and at your current program, what are ways that you've tried to support foreign medical graduates to pursue such careers? It is an issue. And where the issue lies, truly, is if they are interested in research to enhance conceivably their portfolio and be gradually known in the United States before they get a position, let's say, in internal medicine or any of those. Why? Because then you have to find resources, either a grant or a support from the hospital or a foundation money or grant or something that we have raised through the community to support research. So you could see how difficult it is. So we talked about it before that one aspect to get to be known is to do a research year or two. But the challenges of that research year or two is just like you mentioned, is how do I support it? Now, at times I have a grant and at times I see, my goodness, this person is quite impressive to do that. But part of the issue that we deal with besides resources, Victor, is the level of their training. Meaning, if I'm a cardiologist and I'm looking among my faculty about positions, ideally, it would be somebody who certainly finished internal medicine, has had some cardiology exposure through their training, meaning just above medical school for the quote-unquote training period, depending what they do. So you have to marry the level of knowledge of that individual if they're just coming out of medical school. It is the motivation and the bare minimum of knowledge about medicine. So you cannot ask them to do a highly technical task that other people needed almost a year to get trained in. So you have to match then their aptitude to the research area. If it is chart review and nowadays electronic chart review and things that can be rather generic, that's easy. But usually that's not funded. Dr. Sabi, when integrating into the workforce, pursuing careers as physician scientists, I agree with Victor, sometimes there could be challenges in terms of funding because of visas. Is that something that is at the institutional level, there could be any initiative to address? Or is it more that becomes one of the challenges for IMGs when pursuing academic careers? This is a true threat and a true challenge. You know, many of the IMGs, unless they have a connection through family to be able to have, let's say, a green card or a citizenship, they have to deal with a visa issue. This is reality. As an employer, right? 
somebody who's going to bring this on as an early career on faculty, you have to be willing to say to yourself, it is worth to go through either an O visa or something else or support an H visa. Obviously, the candidate themselves, I'm pretty sure, are very knowledgeable and resourceful to try to find somebody to help their application to make it easier for the institution itself. Irrespective, there is a challenge. And we support visas, you know, with all what is needed for that, because ultimately you're going after a candidate that is stellar, that you want that candidate to be part of your faculty. And if you were not, that's the biggest issue, <laughs> right? So it's always on the graduate. It's competitive, but this one is to support beyond just a faculty position, to support a visa channel, an employment channel for them. So always be on tip-top shape, driven, productive, uh, differentiating yourself. That's very important. Yeah, so clearly there are so many barriers at every stage. And I heard you earlier saying that the barrier to getting into cardiology fellowship is almost easier because you've already gone through some of the more difficult hoops. I think we could all agree that one of the more difficult barriers is getting into residency to begin with. And we talked about the criteria for selection. Soon, USMLE step one will become pass or fail instead of a three-digit score. And I'm thinking about my mother when I'm asking this question. She and my dad moved from India to America in the middle of their career. She practiced for well over 15 years before they moved, really for my benefit. And of all the barriers that come up, there's also financial barriers. We lived in a small apartment in Brooklyn, and they didn't have enough money to buy a desk. So they bought this big, huge pillow from a garage sale. And from from sun up to sundown, she would sit on the floor with a pillow in her lap, and that would be her desk for studying her USMLE books. It's something that people, this USMLE step one is a huge factor in the selection process to residency. How do you think that the move to pass-fail will affect IMGs and what impact will it have? Objectively, I'm very concerned about it because it's easy to do pass and fail, right? So I'm just wondering where the cutoff is. Just imagine the cutoff is anything you do that is rather acceptable, your pass. And to get a fail, how often have you seen a fail on an application? So we're going to end up with the same number of applicants with all the P's and less than 5% F's. And uh, you could say, if I give numbers, then I'm differentiating between people. But, you know, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's our life, <laughs> right? You, you, you try to impress people one way or another, either with your performance or with your connection with other people so they can give you a recommendation letter. Basically, not everybody can perform at the same level, right? So I'm going back to the challenge. Now I have a pass-fail. We got that. As a program director, what do I look at to identify whether among, let's say, cardiologists, I have 750 applicants for six or seven positions. I need to look at something objective and remember it is rather objective about knowledge, not necessarily performance. So you take it as one parameter that is rather objective and marry it with all the others. Now I'm dropping this one completely. I take a look at the institution where they are. I take a look at some recommendations letter, which are always rosy or rosier. And what do I take a look at? So it makes our job much more difficult. Okay. So that's one. Take a look at universities, right? In universities, I'm not talking about medical school. You still have to do some testing now because of pandemic. Obviously, it's a different thing, but you have still have to do some testing to judge as opposed to the subjective opinion of three or four people that are recommending you. And you know that you're choosing these three or four people because they will write you a good letter. 
I am truly opposed to this. Now, people in education may have a different way of looking at it, but I'm very pragmatic. And I think it helps us from an objective point of view, whether individuals as such have at least the knowledge of this. Understanding not everybody, you know, can take tests or perform as well as others, but that's my concern. So I would like to turn to a recent JAMA cardiology viewpoint that was very stimulating, Dr. Zobi, and you wrote with Dr. Ankur Kadra in 2017 that was entitled Travel Bans and Threat to U.S. Healthcare. Our Hearts Are at Stake. You highlight in that article the sizable proportion of IMGs amongst medical trainees in the U.S. and the critical gaps that they fill in areas of need in the U.S. medical system. I have a sense that this may be underappreciated by the general public. Through your experience in many leadership roles, what are ways we could promote to the U.S. public the role of foreign medical graduates in the healthcare system and in their health eventually? We felt uh, Anchor actually was senior fellow at that time. Now he's faculty, an amazing person. And actually, I have to give him credit because he is the one who said, we need to write something. And I said, definitely, we need to write something because if we see a threat, And I think that's an advice for all of you. If you see something that does not fit well with your values, your opinion, and you feel strongly about it, you have to voice it one way or another. And we work closely with JAMA to be able to have a balanced piece that focuses it, not only necessarily on cardiovascular, but the importance of of international medical graduates and what they bring to the equation. I know we mentioned quite a few things in the interview already, but we are enriched by different backgrounds, different opinions, different genetic pool. And that's actually the best for medicine and for humanity. The United States is actually the land of opportunity, and it is a land of where you bring people. And that's, that's how it was founded, right? from all walks of life who can contribute to a better future. So how do these IMGs contribute to a better future? Number one, they are among the most skilled people. And we know that from testing, from where they come from, how well they perform. And we, you, we mentioned that through in the article. But importantly also, when they're done with their training, they go in the workforce and help you know, the needed situations. Many of them are in rural areas. Some of them certainly are in big cities. And to tell you the truth, some people may shy away from going in rural areas where we need to be. So uh, I think their contributions to clinical care, and we mentioned also that they perform, I don't want to compare things, but certainly they perform in a stellar fashion. Also look at the innovation, look at the areas of research, their contributions, their new discoveries. Just pick up any journal. I'm not profiling people, but pick up any journal. And you'll find that beauty of diversity, of collaboration, contribution, and the same thing is in the educational field. And when these trainees come on board, as I said before, they are in a way global. So they work here conceivably, but they may go back and work in their country of origin and contribute. And also they become this collaborative, this this link right, between the United States and various regions of the world. And you could see that in how also professional organizations have made themselves. I pride myself and, and uh, Dr. Jamil Tajik for us to start the international mission of the ACC with chapters. We had zero chapters and now we have almost close to 50 chapters throughout the world. And many of the people involved are IMGs either here or they went back to their country of origin. And you see the dialogue, the sharing of information, 
we learn from them because they have different challenges and maybe different diseases and different approaches. I mean, we're all about spreading knowledge, improving care and improving knowledge. So we felt strongly about it to write about. Dr. Zogby, this was beautiful. And this paper really resonated with my path. And I was really touched by a part of it that if I can quote yours and Dr. Kara's paper, was the multicultural, multi-ethnic, open-minded, plural fabric that has defined American medicine and contributed to its success over the years. This was so touching to me, and I would like to go ahead and start our narrative section of this episode by quoting this part of your paper, which is so beautiful and tells us so much about how amazing it is to have diversity. Thank you. We felt strongly about it, and I know many people feel the same too. And we hope, I think, with the, the more emphasis, if you will, on the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion, that we go beyond the origin, quote-unquote, the look, quote-unquote, the background, quote-unquote, and think about the reality of where we are to make things better for the future. You are, you know, the early careers or the trainees that these responsibilities in cardiovascular medicine are upon your shoulders. We've made our mark. I want to make sure that what we had can be improved on And I want to make sure to support such endeavors because we're here for a finite time. There's no question about it. And we want to make sure we pass on the torch for other people to take the leadership and to be in good hands for you, your kids, your future generations. And I think, you know, a word that I use in addition to this is in a polarized world that I've never seen before in this country and other countries also, is that we have to be accepting and tolerant. Tolerant, not in a negative way but to see other people as equal and give them opportunities to rise because if they rise, all of us will rise. Dr. Zerbi, you and I share the same alma mater and I similarly graduated from the American University of Beirut and as you had mentioned earlier, tried to distinguish myself by pursuing additional years of research before applying to residency. And I had an interest in pursuing research in an academic career, but certainly pursued that path additionally to try to secure a competitive training spot in the U.S. I feel I was fortunate by coming to the U.S. that I was surrounded by a wealth of mentors from my alma mater. As you've said, Many generations have come over to the United States to train here, and I do realize and appreciate that might not be the case for every graduate. I'm curious what uh, sparked your interest in cardiology, and how was that path for you many years ago where maybe that sort of wealth of graduates from our school wasn't present? Thanks for the question, Victor, and congratulations to you also. It, it, is, <laughs> it is quite in the past, but I will never forget it because, number one, I know in Lebanon, we had amazing opportunities to learn. And from even my high school to the American University of Beirut has been really the foundation of how you learn, what are some of the mentors, and most importantly to me is curiosity and how you continue to learn. If these are instilled in us, I think you will continue pursuing whatever your passion is. Interestingly enough, you may not know this, but in high school or after high school, I was not going into medicine. My path was much more engineering because I was driven by physics and math. That was my forte. Biology was not my forte. So I was going into engineering and 
you know, we had no mentors at that time, truly, and no advisors here. I can see my kids when, when they were in high school, they had all the advice and everything else to understand what they're. So I was doing it myself and going around with people. And it was a fortuitous get together. And I met one of the physicians who was training in the French faculty. He told me, William said, oh, you're going to love medicine. I love it so much. And I know you're interested in math and physics and all that stuff. The science is amazing, but also the human touch is getting to help people and engage with people. And I know you would love that. So it it sparked something in my mind that said, at least my undergrad, I'm going to do biology. And that's what I did. And, you know, I applied for medical school there and I got in medical school. And then obviously the war broke out. So we were there for two years. It was very tough. Three of my classmates were able to transfer after two years of the war with dangers and so many other things. We don't have to go through them, but that's in the rearview mirror. But also it keeps you grounded as to what's important and, uh, and, and uh, in life and what are real challenges and how do you overcome it and be resilient. And I was fortunate to land in the United States. Certainly none of that was in my radar screen. I was thinking maybe after medical school at the American University of Beirut, I can maybe come for a specialty, uh, just subspecialize and go back to my alma mater, who I love and I still serve. I'm on their board of trustees and I head their medicine and health. So this is giving back because it's part of us. And I think I had tremendous opportunities. So mentorship is critical at every step of the way. It's even more critical at your level, but it will never go away because it's great to be able to aspire. It's not only aspire for people's modulation of how they address medicine, but also a balance, a checkpoint, if you will, uh, a conversation that hopefully you can grow and emulate and pick what you really like about it. So um Amazing journey. I would have never thought that it would be that. And also it tells you about the United States itself and what is possible in the United States that we all admire because it gives you opportunities that in many other countries you may not have such opportunities. And it is rather flat as opposed to hierarchical. I'm not talking about flat from a negative point of view, meaning that the hierarchy is not as steep nor as negative in a way that you see in many other countries. And I would have never dreamt that I would be president of two societies, certainly the American College of Cardiology. And that tells you also about the opportunities that you could have in the United States if you make your mark and you're selected one way or another. And that was not certainly on my radar screen. I was not really aspiring for that in my early, even mid-career, but it was a pleasure to serve. Well, we are all very proud of you and thankful for all your mentorship and support throughout the years. We're energized by people like you and by our trainees, truly. And I think because they keep us young, they keep us thinking smart, because if you're challenging us, and I challenge my fellows all the time and they challenge me. And I, I do that in a positive way, because we all want to get better. We all want to be as invigorated, motivated for a better current and a better future. Dr. Shabi, can you share with us as you were transitioning to the U.S. and going through all those accomplishments that you were mentioning, were there any challenges that you faced that you want to share? Not at all. No, no challenges. What? No, I'm just kidding you. <laughs> uh, I mean, some of them are personal and some of them are probably universal. I'll tell you the personal one is I'm French educated. 
So understanding the spoken language and the various dialects and impressions and words is different if you read it in a book and then listen to it. So the first thing was hard for me was to speak it fluently as opposed to write it and understand it in books like you go to medical school, right? Because I've transferred in the middle of medical school. So that was an interesting one. But interestingly enough, you dream in a language that you master. I dream in English nowadays. You know, I used to dream in Arabic and French, but it is interesting. Two is basically accommodating to life early on. I came to the United States in 77. That was very difficult. There was no FaceTime and Lebanon was during a war. And you just tell you about the sacrifice of your parents. I said, go. And uh, they sacrificed much more than we are sacrificing for our kids because it's a better future and we're going to tough it out here. But to get in touch with them, what to go through international calls, you're allowed three calls and the lines were always busy. So that's it. So you spend about two or three hours to just make a call that per minute is about $3. So just to tell you the story, and that was in 77, 80, 85, all this. So th these are the challenges to stay connected and coming to a world that is rather foreign to you. The other things that were much easier <laughs> is the way of life. It's just like you could sit in your home even then and do almost any transaction you want to do. In Lebanon, we were told that you could do one task per day. That's it. For you to be able to do it, you could do one task because of all the difficulties that you had to go through. So, you know, balancing that, it's really amazing. And I know you share, many of you who are foreign graduates, you share that for me, Lebanon is my roots. And gradually, at, after a few years, you feel that you belong in two places because if Lebanon is my roots, the U.S. is my trunk for the whole tree. And it is so integral that you truly think global. You give to this country and to not only Lebanon, to many countries. You become a citizen of the world. And I love this feeling because you are much more empathetic towards, you know, life, towards human and others. And I think it just become your citizen of the world. And I just love to give to this country and the others. And again, as I told Victor, I would have never dreamt that I would have, number one, the opportunities that I did because at times in calamity and stress and difficulties and challenges, opportunities may arise and you have to look for them. And I know each one of the IMGs have their own story. There's no question about it. We, I give leadership courses at ACC. And the first thing I tell them said, you didn't think that you're going to be at this leadership course a year ago. And many other things in life are not controlled. They're not planned. Obviously, if you don't dedicate yourself and put yourself to work and do things that you want to do, you're not going to be able to accomplish many things, but you're going to have tremendous opportunities ahead of you. And it's for you to choose. And how do you navigate your life? Dr. Zerbe, we just wanted to inquire about how you felt during passing on the Olympic torch and how did that come about? Oh, that was very simple. I got a call in July of 2012, said, are you busy July 9th, 2012? Said, no, I'm not busy. And said, are you interested in carrying the torch? And said, I'm definitely not busy. It didn't come about because of my athletic capabilities. I can tell you that, Victor. I was a new president of the ACC. And we were asked to represent the cardiovascular community in the United States. So I was honored and privileged indeed to do that. I was thrilled. I can tell you, I trained for it because it's not a short distance and you have to carry that torch that is rather heavy. And I did not want to drop it. <laughs> it is exhilarating. It was probably among the best experiences ever. And I'll share a few things with you that gives you an opportunity to meet amazing people, 
famous people and individuals who are locally famous. The person I met and, you know, we've had a great fun together is Michelle Kwan, the skater, and she's amazing and she was there. But it's interesting that people who carry the torch are usually local. So the person that I took it from is actually from the Oxford area, was legally blind. He had craniopharyngioma, and he was so respected in the community because he would go to the hospitals, talk with prospective patients who needed surgery, etc., to comfort them. The one I gave it to who had an accident and could not walk for years and had rehabilitation and was able to walk after that. So really amazing people who dedicated themselves and number one were role models in their community to inspire people, dedicate people. There were a few people from the United States, college graduates or college actually attendees who started companies to help other people. One had started by collecting sneakers and giving them to the community. You're talking about 30, 40,000 of them, refurbishing them, et cetera, et cetera. And these are at the college level. So you're in awe as to the other people that are involved and they're recognized. And I think that was an amazing experience that I will never forget. Dr. Zogby, this is incredible. Thank you so much for sharing your story here today and for being with us. And I honestly, I am even more thrilled. I'm looking forward to working together very soon. But before we finish, can you share with us what makes your heart flutter about mentoring IMGs to be future cardiologists? Let me tell you, I- I enjoy mentoring and training, trainees, early career. This is my passion. My passion is cardiovascular medicine and training and sharing knowledge. I have a particular affinity for IMGs, and the reason for it, it, they remind me of my path to the United States. And I feel with them uh, the many challenges that we talked about today. At times, a flashback, and I I inquire about their backgrounds, their families, what they had to go through to come. And it tells you about the motivation of people, their drive, and what they're aspiring for. It's a hard path for IMGs, but I'm, I'm so proud of them because they come, train, dedicate themselves, incorporate themselves into the workforce, go back and help people back home. Because that's our mission. If we take care of patients and we push the innovation field, right, for a better future and make sure that we educate current physicians, educate the community, volunteer in the community, educate the future generations of physicians that will basically be the leaders and the workers of the future. I feel that we would have done a good job. And IMGs have, similar to others, but they have a little more burden going through because usually their families are not close by. Nowadays, yes, you can connect in different ways, but also each have gone through some hardships to be able to get there. Not that the U.S. medical graduates haven't gone through the same. In truth, and I don't want to focus only on IMGs, is that we have a lot of work to do here. And you say that IMGs may be conceivably a harder path, discriminated against, etc. But we have to do a better job in the United States of seeing more diversity in our workforce and our trainees. And I think about Hispanics, Black, Asian, other things to give them opportunity. Now, I see this late in the course, right? 
because you're presented a slate of applicants from which to choose. But we want to make sure that on that applicant list is a great number of diversity of individuals' backgrounds within the United States and from outside the United States. And these take time, but also have to take a priority so that we can give opportunities for people to go through high school, finish high school, go to college, be interested in medicine, which is among the most respected and professional things that you could do in life. And for us to be on the receiving end, ultimately, of somebody knocking on the door and being interested in cardiovascular medicine and its specialties. But, but I'm giving you this because it's upon you, upon us, all of us, to make sure that we have a good representation, but we want quality people. I don't want just representation just for the case of representation. And that's why our work has to start even earlier of inspiring people giving them the resources, the opportunities to go and train. I'll share with you that one of my patients who turned out to be a great friend also at the same time uh, is an owner of, of a salon okay, here in the Houston area. So just imagine that this individual who has no connection to medicine decided to do in his company to make sure that if the children of these employees are interested in medicine, that he would finance the whole medical school for them. So, I mean, th this is reaching out to the community and enticing people, taking away at least the barrier of resources. And uh, I'm pretty sure you know many people who could do the same. I know many people. The question, is this a priority? And I think it is a priority for all of us to make sure that we treat IMGs in the fairest way. Yes, they have different challenges and we can't take them all out. But I know their motivation is strong enough to be able to join our trainees, our workforce, and also communicate and share knowledge and expertise and give back to the country of origin. Wow, Dr. Zogby, thank you so much for such a powerful discussion. And a very special thanks to Isa, who led and coordinated and drafted uh, and planned this episode. Um, you know, I'm thinking, who are IMGs? Well, they're the backbone of American healthcare. They are our friends and colleagues. They are leaders like yourself, Dr. Zogby. There are teachers and mentors. And I'm thinking to one of my personal mentors, Dr. Weil Jaber, who's also from Lebanon. They're physician scientists. And I'm looking at Giselle and Isa and Victor. And you said, Dr. Zobi, look at any journal and open up and look at the names. And I would say, look at the many cardio nerd episodes. They are cardio nerds. And for me personally, they're also my mom and dad. So I think this discussion will touch many people and it's important for all to hear. Thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure being with you. And I'm so proud of all of you. I'm so proud of what you accomplish. And I'm speaking here to IMGs and all trainees, truly. I really don't differentiate. But I think it's important to highlight that if there is a differentiation, we have to take it out. And I think your forum of Cardio Nerds will message it so well. And I'm so proud of all your accomplishments and your, I mean, this is volunteering work, right? Uh, on a Sunday. That tells you also where your priorities are, right? If you were just a nine to five worker and that's about it, that's all what you want to do, you would not do this. And I think it's important for each one of us, trainees, early career, late career, whatever it is that you want to talk about, to think beyond our little microcosm and see how can we do things a little better and during our, you know, stay here a little better for our colleagues, our patients, uh, the field, 
and, uh, and all the world. And I think this is our mission.